the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Congressional Electoral Certification slash Control of the U.S. Senate edition of The Dan Proft Show. That's a really catchy moniker, isn't it? Uh, but it speaks to the momentousness of the last uh, 24 hours and the 24 hours to come. As of uh, our discussion, you have uh, Ralph Raphael Warnock, the declared victor, according to Associated Press, the declared victor in one of the Georgia Senate runoffs ahead of Kelly Loeffler by about 54,000 votes. Although, as you'll hear, Loeffler in the early morning hours today did not concede the race yet. And you have uh, John Ossoff up about uh, 17,000 votes on David Perdue in a race that nobody's called yet except John Ossoff, who released this video this morning. Good morning. It is with humility that I thank the people of Georgia for electing me to serve you in the United States Senate. Thank you for the confidence and trust that you have placed in me. At this moment of crisis, as COVID-19 continues to ravage our state and our country, When hundreds of thousands have lost their lives, millions have lost livelihoods, Georgia families are having difficulty putting food on the table, fearing foreclosure or eviction, having difficulty making ends meet. Let's unite now to beat this virus and rush economic relief to the people of our state and to the American people. Yeah, that's sort of the $2,000 guarantee, right, before the, in the waning days before the, the uh, before Tuesday's election. Raphael Warnock, uh, late last night, uh, issued his own video. And, uh, boy, the uh, concerns about uh, America being uh, uh, beset by a worship of whiteness seem to have subsided now that he's been elected. Georgia, I am honored by the faith that you have shown in me. And I promise you this tonight, I am going to the Senate to work for all of Georgia. No matter who you cast your vote for in this election, in this moment in American history. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. Could only happen here in systemically racist America where we worship whiteness. Hmm. I wish uh, some people other than me and a handful of others perhaps would just just once in a while call these identitarian politicians on their cynical cant you can't have it both ways uh, reverend kelly loffler though uh, in the early morning hours today uh, spoke to her supporters and said there's still a path she is not conceding we got lots of things to go out but we got some work to do here this is a game of inches. We're going to win this election. We're going to save this country. We're going to make sure every vote is counted. Every, that's right. <laughs> every, every legal vote will be counted. And I'm not going to stop working. 
Uh, in the morning, in fact, I'm going to be heading to Washington, D.C. to keep fighting. That's right. Of course, she is one of the senators who committed to object to the results, and so that is uh, where she is today for uh, reaction and postmortem. Uh, well, even though the bodies aren't cold, so to speak, yet uh, to all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy Kroll, who is the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. Andy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And so. These uh, Senate runoffs, I mean, were, you know, strikingly similar to the presidential election in Georgia in terms of distribution of vote. And I wonder uh, why you think that, uh, as it stands right now, it looks like we have a repeat uh, on January 5th of what happened on November 3rd. I think there are, there are a couple of factors at play here looking at the November results and then looking at the results from last night, which, as you point out, of course, are, are not yet complete, complete enough, I guess, for the Warnock race to be called, but not for the Ossoff-Purdue race to be called. So I think on the one hand, you've got a Democratic and a progressive base in Georgia that has been investing in the state for close to a decade now. Stacey Abrams played a big role in that, but other members of the Democratic Party down there have as well. And I think that you have seen the results in Georgia get closer and closer in the last two to four years in these statewide races. And so on some level, it's not entirely surprising that the demographic changes in the state, especially in Atlanta, larger metropolitan area, that these changes combined with Democrats trying to get organized and make something happen down there, that we're seeing these changes as well. The other flip side of this, I would say, is I don't think President Trump helped Senators Perdue or Leffler with this crusade about supposed voter fraud and challenging the Secretary of State of Georgia between the November result and this runoff election. I don't think he did his own, the members of his own party, any good there. I mean, there are a lot of things the president could have done to try to keep control of the Senate, to keep Republican control of the Senate, even after he left office. But he really didn't seem to commit himself to that cause so much as continue to wage this battle about the presidential outcome. And it's hard to see, I mean, not only that, but also changing his mind on the size of these stimulus checks, which, of course, forced Senators Leffler and Purdue to change tack as well. So there wasn't a lot of help from above for these two senators as well. And I think you had the a confluence of these things happen. And that's why we're looking at potentially two Democratic wins in these runoffs. But we'll see where the Ossoff-Purdue race goes from here. Well, the, th- the thing about, you know, the sort of the Trump factor, of course, this is what's going to be hotly debated because – you know, as far as I'm concerned, the bait that the the race was basically a referendum on Trump in, on January 5th, like it was on November 3rd. But you know, it, it's a, perhaps a bit of a double-edged sword. Some of the things that uh, occurred between November 3 and yesterday were per- perhaps unhelpful. But by the same token, uh, net net, clearly the campaigns, the senatorial campaign committee, GOP senatorial campaign committee, and President Trump thought that the positive that, that the net net was. He's a positive force. He is a GOTV machine because that's why he was in Dalton, Georgia the night before to 25,000 supporters and a million more watching online to try to whip the vote out for Leffler and Purdue. And, and it's, it's difficult, it seems to me, to say Purdue uh, beat Ossoff by 88, well, you know, he got 88,000 more votes than Ossoff on November 3rd, and now he's down 17,000 votes. And that 100,000 is all a function of uh, people picking Brad Raffensperger over Trump or something? I, that doesn't seem to me to make sense. 
I wouldn't say it would specifically say the Raffensperger phone call, but I would say the president's just sort of continued message specific to Georgia and nationwide, or at least in these seven states that he and Rudy Giuliani and others have singled out as being supposedly riddled with fraud, that the election wasn't fair, that the result couldn't be trusted. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't, you don't want to do a, a causation, correlation uh, yeah, mistake yeah. here, right. but you know, right. we saw in some of these more rural areas, last in the results last night, that the turnout had gone down for the two Republican candidates, you know, obviously they still carried these counties by a significant margin in, in more rural parts of the Northeast, Northwest. They were not the margins that Trump got. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying, but, and, and sorry to interrupt, but how much of it do you think is a function of the candidates themselves? I mean, one of the uh, many arguments that have been made, and, and this is sort of a axiom of politics, candidates matter, the quality of the candidates matter, candidate recruitment is important, and uh, Leffler and Purdue are not the most dynamic of candidates, uh, not the most charismatic, and uh, Warnock with the lineage of his church of Martin Luther King and Nossoff with, uh, I don't know, whatever he said to possess, were just more dynamic candidates. It's, it's definitely part of it, for sure. And I, and I think that there will definitely be hand-wringing in the Republican Party that Kelly Leffler was either tapped to fill that seat or that there wasn't you know, more of an effort to switch to get behind uh, Doug Collins, who obviously yeah. ran in that initially ran in that race as well and, you know, is more aligned with the, or at least was at the time, was more aligned with the base of the party, kind of had a big profile after the impeachment hearings in early 2020. So you know, these races, it, it's never one thing, right? I mean, you know this just like I do. It's the quality of the candidates. It's the sort of national political atmosphere. It's what are the political party leaders doing, in this case, President Trump. I do think President Trump could have done a lot more for these candidates. Mm-hmm. He could have, whether in, in terms of how he spoke about the November results, trying to put some focus on the, the Georgia result in a way that would mobilize people and not potentially turn them off because of they don't think their vote's going to count or they think, you know, it's going to be disappeared in the voting machine or something. I don't know. But, you know, the president did not do his party favors and it now sets up this really fascinating debate in the in the Republican Party and we're seeing it just today in some of these rallies in DC and and other comments of you know where does the party go from here and who who are well, the leaders and what is that message y- yeah, and I want to pick up uh, on, on that very topic when we return because of the other party leaders that uh, have some reckoning before them ostensibly include Mitch McConnell, the RNC, the Senate Republican Campaign Committee. There's uh, a lot, you know, everything is subordinated to Trump, of course, in terms of attention, but there's some attention that's demanded in that direction as well. More with Andy Krall, the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show we're speaking with andy crawl he's the washington bureau chief for rolling stone magazine talking about the georgia senate races and all of the various sub issues under that heading and uh, andy before the break we were getting to uh, the party leaders and where does the Republican Party go from here? Uh, 
where does the Republican Party go from here if they're effectively in the minority in the Senate? Is is Mitch McConnell going to survive? Does he want to survive as Senate Minority Leader, number one? Number two, can he survive as Senate Minority Leader after ostensibly, uh, you know, the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Republicans in the Senate were a bit asleep at the switch on Georgia. They didn't anticipate runoff elections. And... Um, and then, obviously, the consternation between the president and McConnell uh, from the, the time from November 3rd to January 5th, most recently, with the size of the so-called uh, stimulus check. Uh, they, these are sticking points that uh, probably generate some opprobrium in directions other than Trump. Based on what I've heard out of D.C., I mean, this, and this is obviously a live situation, given that the runoff was last night. McConnell's position isn't in doubt as the head of the Senate Republicans. He can point to what he did under President Trump, obviously, a, you know, a sort of fast moving conveyor belt of judicial appointments. Mm-hmm. He can point to the big tax cut bill. He can point to, you know, a, a number of uh, uh, important roles that he played for the Republican Party. And McConnell is also a master of procedure. So even if he is the minority leader, We've seen him as minority leader gum up the works pretty darn well from a Republican standpoint. So I think his position there is pretty well secure if he wants it. And by all indications, clearly he does. The bigger question for me is Mitch McConnell is not going to run for president in 2024 as far as I know and as far as anyone I've ever talked to knows. And so there is this gap for the sort of political leader of the party writ large. And this is a person who you know, would help determine the course of the RNC, determine the course, the House Republican Committee, the Senate Republican Committee. Who is that person? Is that person Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri? Is it Ted Cruz? Is it um, is it Tom Cotton out of Arkansas? I mean, it's very, it's very interesting to see how this is going to play out because on this electoral certification issue, you do have a a divide in the party about this. Hawley yeah. and Cruz are obviously leading the opposition. Tom Cotton has said that this is not the path to take on constitutional grounds, but I think Tom Cotton also understands some of the political ramifications here if, if the Republican Party launches this sort of all-out attack on the legitimacy of the Electoral College. Do Democrats try to use that as an opening to start making the case for changing the electoral college or abolishing it. We're hearing some chatter about that in D.C. as well, some anxiety um, uh, in, in Republican circles, though only on background in, in an anonymous quotes, about opening the door to challenging the, the electoral college, period. So it is very unclear right now, even with McConnell still leading Senate Republicans, who rises to fill that, that, that more national um, slot there. If it's not Donald Trump, post-presidency and possibly running again in 2024, which, again, is something that, that could happen. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, you. Um, I mean, some of the, the scuttlebutt was that if Trump uh, uh, is not uh, victorious, then he spends the next two years helping Kevin McCarthy try to get the House back and uses that as a way to not only stay present, but the springboard into 2024, because that would be another feather in his cap uh, you know, purportedly that he could use. And if he doesn't, then it's just sort of a vacuum as existed, it seems to me, 
in advance of the 2016 election. If if Trump says the heck with it, I'm done. And, uh, you know, he, he maybe he taps an heir apparent like uh, Ron DeSantis or, or even Josh Hawley. I don't know. But uh, if he doesn't do that, then then it's just, a, you know, another 20 candidate free for all, it would seem to me. Yeah, I mean, that is the big question, not to look too far ahead to, to 2024 when we're still sorting through the, the wreckage of 2020. But, yes, that's right. Who, you know, if, if Trump is not – Trump doesn't run. I mean, it, it, you know, people have said it's, it's, his, it's his to run for if he wants to – at least people say that now. Maybe that changes after control of the Senate changes hands. But if he is not there, there's certainly a competition for his – blessing his support his um uh, endorsement but it's a wide open field yes it's 2016 all over again it's a fight for the soul of the republican party the future of the republican party all over again and maybe it expands even further so that there is a josh hawley and that there is a tom cotton and a ted cruz but maybe there's you know does Mitt romney run again does one of these blue state republican governors like larry hogan of maryland charlie baker of massachusetts do they get in with a totally different different vision it could be wide it could be wide open i would love to cover that presidential primary contest without a doubt but it's unclear far too far too early to stay right now if that's what we're going to end up there's a lot that's going to happen including those 2022 midterms yeah i want to pull back uh and uh, not just talk about uh, the republican party and 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 its future and and 2022 2024 cycles and let's talk about uh, the immediate future of this country uh a comment that uh texas republican congressman chip roy made on tucker carlson's show on monday uh, suggesting where we are going to be if what appears to have transpired on tuesday night in georgia did indeed come to pass listen to chip roy. i mean it, we're we're now basically at full-scale hot uh, conflict in this country, whereas right now we're at a cold civil war. Uh, we've got a major problem in this country where the American people, uh, the regular people out there that are working every day, hardworking Americans, that are getting trampled by a system that is rigged against them, as you said. Uh, that is what is at stake. And if the American people in Georgia don't show up, if Georgians don't show up and ensure that we hold the Senate in Republican hands, then that's what's happening. That's what's happening, he says. Uh, we're going from a cold civil war to a hot conflict. And I, I don't think he's necessarily saying violence or, uh, or, or you know, he's not talking about it from a military perspective, but, but at minimum, a cultural and political one. The divides have never felt more stark and more insurmountable, probably in my lifetime. I mean, I'm not that old. I turned 35, you know, in, in a month and a half. But, and then, you know, and, and, I, and I've been covering politics for 10 years or so here. I'm not that old at all. But um, I got you by 10 years, but I agree with you. I think, you know, if you talk to people who lived through the 60s, they will say, some will say at least, it's not anything like we lived through in the 60s. I, I don't, you know, sure. and I don't think you necessarily need to live through something to comment on it. I'm not so sure that's true because just of the, the nature of where institutions are in this country. But, but some will make that argument. But, but your point is, your, your larger point is still a salient one. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, not at all. And I think that's, that's a good point to bring up, even if you don't agree with it, you know, that, that we, the country has been in this place before. And we, we need to know that when we talk about uh, you know, the current predicament we find ourselves in. I mean, I think Congressman Roy, you know, makes some good points in his interview there. I mean, what he says about the system being rigged, in some ways, that sounds just like Senator Elizabeth Warren 
talking about the system rigged. They couldn't be two more politically different creatures, those two, Roy and Warren. But he, he's got a point there for sure. He is Andy Crawl, Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, uh, building on our conversation with Andy Crawl from Rolling Stone before the break about the Georgia Senate races. Now we go from January 5th into January 6th to January 6th into probably what will be January 7th with respect to the electoral objections expected to be lodged by Republican members of the House and Senate. Uh, In advance of uh, those proceedings, you have the Save America rally, a bunch of Trump supporters descending really hundreds of thousands, it appears, descending on Washington yesterday into today and uh, being treated to speeches from the president, as well as uh, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani and others. Here was uh, Donald Trump Jr. this morning addressing the crowd, well, really addressing the Republican caucuses in front of the crowd is what he was doing. It should be a message to all the Republicans who have not been willing to actually fight. The people who did nothing to stop this deal. This gathering should send a message to them. This isn't their Republican Party anymore. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. So to those Republicans, many of which may be voting on things in the coming hours, you have an opportunity today. You can be a hero or you can be a zero. And the choice is yours, but we are all watching. That's the message. These guys better fight for Trump, because if they're not, guess what? I'm going to be in your backyard in a couple of months. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Gabriel, editor of Ricochet.com, and contributor to AZCentral.com as well. John, do you want Don Jr. in your backyard or don't you? He would be a fool not to visit us. Yeah, I think he will go around the country, and we will have a bit of a reckoning uh, coming for the GOP as Alexis wounds, especially with results in Georgia. You know, most of us were thinking after November, the November election day, we're thinking, well, we'll get at least one of those seats, and we'll have the Senate, and even if Trump isn't sworn in, and the recounts don't break his way, Biden won't be able to accomplish it. Well, now we've lost everything, you know, we've lost the White House, uh, all of but um, now everybody's going to be uh, setting out their position. It, it's kind of tough to use Donald Trump as a cudgel if he's not in the White House because he doesn't have that powerful ability uh, to, you know, shout people down and cut people's knees out from under him. He's just not going to have that ability. He's he definitely is not going to keep quiet or <laughs> be right, by quietly return to Florida. He's not doing that either, but he won't have the institutional power to kind of retaliate. Of the the popular power, uh, more so than anybody else that would uh, uh, assert 
leadership of the Republican Party, it would seem, at least uh, in the uh, initial months after his presidency, depending on how he wants to play that. But if he plays it as advertised, you know, in terms of helping Kevin McCarthy with House races to take back the House in in 22, then... um, you know, maybe uh, maybe Junior's right. I, I should say. Do you think Junior's right that it it is Trump's Republican Party right now? And when he says it's not your Republican Party, he's basically saying to Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney and establishmentarians, "I'm talking to you. It's not your party. It's my dad's party." Right, and I think it's definitely you know, if you look nationally, you know, it took a poll on GOP voters today or a year now probably Trump not number one in popularity. Um, everybody else has their own little groups who like um, their own fans here and there. But yeah, he is the, the chief messenger of the GOP, and all the GOP is going to have to accept that, at least in part. I, I think the frustration among many in the base, whether you're you know hardcore Trump fan or just like, well, I'll vote for him because he's certainly better than Biden, I think everybody's uh, pretty frustrated with the as usual crowd. People who just uh, rolled into D.C. in, um, say, 2002 or something, who think, okay, it's gone, everything can go back to normal. There's never any going back in politics, first off, whatever you came from. But um, people, you know, even, you know, suburban voters who might have voted or just stayed home instead of uh, going out to support the Georgia Senate, I think they're saying, well, no, you guys caused a lot of problems for us. You're the reason Obama got in. You're the reason care got in and fix health care when you had repeated chances to do so. Um, the, the D.C. Republicans really have to understand, look, we got to at least look at things like how Trump has built his um, voting support among a work of minorities all over the country, Florida, Texas, and many other places. He tapped into working class uh, group that is not going to be swayed by policy papers coming from D.C. think tanks and Manhattan um, conference rooms. And they have yep. to understand, look, we got to get out there and compete for these guys' votes and respect them and want them to support us. Uh, when we come back with uh, John Grapeville, I want to also uh, uh, get your assessment on um, the uh, – genuineness that is uh, uh, coming from the left as it pertains to unity, uh, most uh, notably the comments from Washington Post Gene Robinson about per- proceedings today. We'll be back with uh, more of Ricochet.com editor John Gabriel right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Ricochet.com's John Gabriel. And, uh, John, before the break, talking a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of the Trump populists versus the establishmentarians inside the Beltway. And I just wanted to get your reaction to... Um, this tweet by Josh Holmes, who's a former chief of staff to Mitch McConnell. This is uh, him reacting you know, late last night to the uh, uh, apparent results in Georgia. Suburbs, my friends, the suburbs. I feel like a one-trick pony, but here we are again. We went from talking about jobs in the economy to QAnon election conspiracies in four short years. And, as it turns out, they were listening. Um, we, who's the we that was talking about QAnon? I don't know who Josh Holmes is saying the we is, number one. And number two, uh, do you recall a speech or an interview in which Trump 
gave over the last uh, at least two years where he didn't argue he created the strongest economy in U.S. history and run through pre-lockdown unemployment numbers? Yeah, this broad brush attack, like, look, you unwashed masses are stupid, and you should be talking yes. about uh, tax breaks. Um, it can't win, and that's kind of what I meant when I said earlier just about this. Well, uh, we Republicans D.C. know what's best for you out there in the heartland or the country. Just be quiet and listen to us, and we'll tell you what the agenda is. Um, yeah, I, you know, obviously I hang out with Republicans and conservatives all the time. I've never had a person bring up QAnon. Um, people kept mentioning it. I kept hearing about it from liberals. And only a few months back, I finally looked into it, and I was so confused with my head. But it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, it might exist online, you know, on you know, some Reddit page or something, but nobody in the world is talking about it. We're talking about, hey, uh, maybe it would be nice if, uh, you know, I'm a debt hawk, but my neighbors are talking, why don't they just send us $2,000 checks? That's something McConnell's done, you know, especially before a big Senate race. And I said, hawks, so I'm like, no, we, we, we don't have any money. But um, people are talking about bread and butter issues. They're talking about, look, why, you know, why is school still closed? Why can I not show up to work anymore? You know, how many years are we talking about lockdowns? Um, that's what people are talking about. And I just don't see anybody in my daily life. And I have, you know, friends from left progressive to fringe right. But he's mentioned Q and all these crazy conspiracy theories. Always get amplified online and usually by the left. And I think McConnell's office needs to kind of get on board that they're base is not some crazy conspiracy-minded group. And uh, on the other side, you have uh, Eugene Robinson, the assistant editor of the Washington Post, uh, working diligently to save our democracy for us. Listen to what he had to say about uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and um, the um, you know impending shredding of our democracy. Hawley and Cruz uh, and and the rest of the dirty dozen, or I guess there are fourteen of them now, um, uh, are uh, you know should should live in eternal shame for what they're doing because they're you know they're they're damaging uh, not just uh, Democrats and they're they're certainly I hope not uh, improving their odds of ever becoming president. I think they should wear uh, some sort of scarlet letter for the rest of their political careers uh, because they're harming the country. They're harming the country in a way that, that Vladimir Putin hasn't been able to do, that Xi Jinping hasn't been able to do, that the Ayatollahs in Iran have not been able to do. Um, you know, John, uh, the uh, senators Hawley and Cruz pose a greater uh, apparently national security threat to the United States than Putin, Xi, and uh, the Ayatollah. Yeah. And meanwhile, he celebrated when... Um, Pallets of cash were dropped off in the middle of the night to those mullahs in Iran. So, um, yeah, now now they're concerned about these people. Yeah, what they're doing um, in Congress or in the Senate with Ted Cruz and so forth, you can agree with them, you can disagree with them, but they're doing exactly what Democrats did when Trump was elected. Uh, gosh, they were even doing this back when George W. Bush was reelected in 04. So, um, yeah, at worst, grandstanding. Um, this is not a and uh, for him to create enemies lists, basically saying that these people are internal enemies, we must purge them out and give them scarlet letters. 
is ludicrous. And I think deep down he knows it's ludicrous. Um, if, if we want to actually get on the same page and have unity and fix the problems of the country, which Biden keeps talking about, um, this kind of rhetoric is not going to help. Well, it, right. You know, scarlet letters, maybe uh, they could find uh, some space in one of those Cuomo COVID camps for uh, these Republican senators, <laughs> something like this. But but it, it's it's the mantra of the left, including the politicians. So it's not just Gene Robinson. Of course, they sort of read from the same script, which is uh, you're you're if, if you're doing something I dislike, then you're undermining our democracy because they were saying that the Trump campaign was undermining d- democracy from November 4th forward when the Trump campaign was legitimately pursuing its legal avenues through courts of law and they were d- dismissing the suits. Okay, fine. But he's not, he's not undermining democracy by accessing the institutions of democracy we've erected for dispute resolution. So I don't know if you can have a conversation with somebody like Gene Robinson or some of these other automatons of the left when their response to everything is either science or you're undermining democracy. Yeah, call me old-fashioned, but uh, back in the old olden days, <laughs> when I was first of getting involved in politics, um, if you disagreed with someone, you'd say, I disagree with you. Now it's screaming traitor and mobbing them and pounding at their door when uh, they might be out of town like happened to Senator Hawley recently. Yeah, um, yeah it's just everything has to be turned to 11 immediately. Um, I, I and also, uh, also to go ahead. But so sorry to interrupt, but also to the thing that unnerves me the most is you're not required to provide any evidentiary backup for your position. You're not quite required to explain this bromide to to offer anything logical or substantive in defense of your position. You just get to to scream out a fortune cookie response, and then that's the end of it. Right, right. And, you know, you know, most of cable news is not going to challenge you on that. Right. Um, you know, they've been screaming traitor, traitor nonstop for over four years now. And uh, usually, I don't know, say the anchor at CNN is just sagely, wisely nodding his head for going to a commercial <laughs> break for Geritol. <laughs> John Gabriel, editor at Ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back. Uh, sticking on uh, contemplating the future of the Republican Party and including how it manifests itself in the Senate. Mitt Romney clearly feeling his oats uh, after last night's runoff, suggesting that uh, perhaps it's not a good idea to tell your supporters the election is rigged if you want them to turn out. So, again, trying to lay blame for uh, what are apparent losses of two U.S. Senate seats by Republicans in Georgia. Well, Mitt Romney may not want to get too big ahead, although this does the reaction of the public outside of what state is he in now? Is it Massachusetts, Michigan? Oh, yeah, Utah. Yeah, it's hard to keep track. The guy's always on the move when it comes to running for office. The reaction that he gets from actual you know, regular working Americans, he may want to consider using some of that Bain Capital money to fly private these days because this is how he was treated 
on a flight to D.C. recently. You know what we think! Traitor! 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 You get the gist. They identified a snake on the plane, at least in their view. <laughs> pretty, It's pretty interesting that uh, the recognition that Mitt Romney is on your plane uh, generates that sort of reaction. Wow. So anyway, it, it will be interesting in terms of operation and what this will mean for the definition of the Republican Party, how those weak sisters in the GOP caucus in the Senate Romney, Collins, Murkowski immediately come to mind. And one Joe Manchin on the Democrat side, you know, they, Joe Manchin is going to have an immense amount of power if the results in Georgia hold up. And the combination of those four senators, each individually, but also collectively, they could form an interesting block to really control the Senate's policy agenda over the next two years at minimum, at least until the midterm elections. It's sort of interesting to contemplate. You know, it's it's the definition, I suppose, of a Hobson's choice. There's no real choice, but maybe it is in terms of doing damage minimization, mitigate the results in 2020 a bit and now 2021. Would you rather have uh, Joe Manchin signed on with Chuck Schumer and it's, you know, this Chuck Schumer. Now we take Georgia and then we change the world. Yeah. Would you rather have Manchin emboldening that Chuck Schumer or Manchin combined with those weak sisters in the Republican caucus acting essentially to at minimum slow down the Schumer transformational train? It's possibility. I don't know. You know, politics sometimes is um, the art of uh, what you want to swallow the least. And uh, perhaps there should be some consideration. And I suppose there there probably already is some afoot, not only by McConnell, but by these individual senators who certainly recognize the um, important pivotal role they can play on the policy debates and the Schumer gambits to come, encouraging that block to work together to stop the Schumer uh, Biden administration, if you will, Schumer-Biden Pelosi administration from going, com- taking the country completely off the rails. You can't expect much from Collins, Romney, and Murkowski because what they basically do is slow walk the left's agenda. But right now, slow walking that agenda is probably the best we can get for two years. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, we turn our attention now to things COVID and specifically lockdown related. And, uh, borrowing on what we did yesterday, continuing to remind people of the real-world study of the effects of lockdown policies, what has been put provided for consideration, and what is glossed over by lockdown pals and uh, their functional comm shops that purport to be journalists in the West. Do you remember this? Uh, Thinking about this, particularly against the background of the U.K. tripling down on lockdowns and uh, the difficulties that big cities in the U.S. still have in doing something so basic and so obvious based on the scientific consensus like reopening schools. From November of this year, 
This is the Journal of of the American Medical Association. An estimation of U.S. children's educational attainment and years of life lost associated with primary school closures during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, This was, uh, uh, again, published in November. The findings, the uh, decision analytical model, and I know how much these decision makers love models, the decision analytical model found that missed instruction during 2020 could be associated with an estimated 5.53 million years of life lost. This loss in life expectancy was likely to be greater than would have been observed if leaving primary schools open had led to an expansion of the first wave of the, pa- of the pandemic. In other words, the findings suggest that the decision to close U.S. public primary schools in the early months of 2020 may be associated with a decrease in life expectancy for children in the U.S. Uh, not just the intellectual retardation and the, the uh, slowing down of the development of social skills, as we've talked about, but not just the long tail of anxiety and so on and so forth that we've talked about, including with medical professionals. But now there's estimates about um, the lives lost, to borrow a phrase. Life expectancy reduced. And for what? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Brendan Neal, who's the editor of Spiked, Spiked Online. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi. Thank you. Um, what is, uh, what is the, the situation in the U.K. where 80% of Brits, according to a YouGov poll, support the lockdown that uh, Prime Minister Bojo announced this week? Uh, the situation here is not good. Uh, as of this week, we are in our third national lockdown. Um, the new rules I find myself living under include not being allowed to leave my house without good reason, only being able to exercise outside for maximum of one hour uh, a day, and not being able to visit friends, not being able to visit family. I mean, you know, really restrictive stuff, like the kind of stuff we had back in March and April in the first lockdown. Um, and polls do show, one one new poll has shown that most people support the lockdown. I'm I'm a little bit sceptical of these opinion polls for the simple reason that it is very difficult to measure public opinion when the public no longer exists. And one of the consequences of lockdown <laughs> is that is that public life has been completely and utterly destroyed. We are we don't have the right to protest anymore. We can't go to the pub and the pub in the UK is as they say, it's like a little parliament on every high street. That's where you have discussions. That's where you make your opinions known to people. You know, we can't rub shoulders with people. We can't talk around the water cooler in the workplace. These are the public spheres in which people form their opinions and in which they get the bravery to dissent against what the government is doing. Without those public spheres, I don't think we actually have public opinion. We have fearful opinion. We have atomized households expressing a sense of fear, I think. So I'm very skeptical of those polls, and I'm very skeptical of our media, which usually is very sniffy about public opinion, except when it suits their agenda. Well, well, but I, I guess, you know, we're still trying to wrap our minds around, I, I, you know, you have this uh, this problem of uh, mass delusion or, or the the madness of the herd. But, but for somebody like Boris Johnson... Um, what is it motivating him to continue these lockdown whack-a-mole 
policies. And why is uh, why uh, why are politicians like Boris Johnson? Do you think so resistant to a consideration of the idea that now that you're in lockdown number three, maybe you're applying the wrong remedy to the problem? That is the big question, and I've been banging my head against a brick wall trying to work out the answer to that question. Um, I think the problem we have in the UK at the moment, and I think it's probably true for many other European countries too, is not so much the madness of the crowd, not so much the madness of ordinary people, but madness of the elites. The elites in this country have lost their marbles, they've lost their minds, and they are pursuing a policy uh, that has not worked. Uh, we've, we've had three national lockdowns now. We've been locked down in one form or another for almost a year. The consequences of that have been absolutely dire. It's predicted that between two and three million people will lose their jobs. The UK is heading for the worst recession since the great frost of the late 1700s. And children have lost almost a year of education. And that is impacting on working class and poor children far more harshly than it is on upper middle class children. So we have devastated a generation's education. We have laid waste to the high street. We've forced the closure of small businesses and shops and pubs. And we've uh, destroyed people's livelihoods. And we haven't done the thing that Boris told us lockdown would do, which is flatten the curve. We still have the virus. It's still spreading. People are still going to hospital. It's been a catastrophic failure. But what's really interesting is that anyone who stands up and says lockdown isn't working, they're the people who are demonized. They're the people who are shut down and they're the people who are treated as heretics. So it's a very worrying climate for open, free, reasoned discussion. Well, I mean, it's sort of like any big social engineering project the the government undertakes, isn't it? Uh, Once... Once it's uh, the policy of the land, then a, a constituency is built upon, uh, built around it, and uh, that constitu- constituency is very defensive of protecting it. With politicians saying the only problems we have with this social engineering gambit is it's not big enough, and so the lockdown isn't big enough, and some people have failed. Uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, talking about social security or the national. Uh, health system in the UK. It's like the, the, whatever the infirmities are, the problem is always to make it bigger. It's more control. It's more government. It's more extraction of other people's uh, work product in order to make this thing go. And I, I, I sense that's the motivation or that's just the ideological disposition. When I hear your health secretary in the UK, Matt Hancock, basically say that uh, Brits are to act as if everyone has covid what does that even mean? Yeah, I thought thought that was such a revealing statement by by Matt Hancock. And for me, it sums up the whole coronavirus climate, because what he was essentially saying is act as if you are a diseased person and act as if everyone else is also diseased. And it really summed up the misanthropy and the authoritarianism of their of their current lockdown project, because it was really about encouraging us to stay away from other human beings, don't mingle with people, don't go to the pub, don't go out in public, definitely don't take part in a political protest because your fellow citizens are actually a threat to you. And that's the culture they have built up over the past year. And my view is that that culture and the lockdown more broadly with its um, recessionary trends and its demolishing of education and freedom and so on, my view is that that culture is going to have a longer term detrimental impact on the UK than COVID is. And our cure is going to be worse than the disease itself. And the, but the, I think you're absolutely right that when 
government and the media, the vast majority of the media supports the government and makes that clear every single day, when they are engaged in such a large-scale social authoritarian experiment like lockdown, they will brook no dissent whatsoever. And in fact, what's happening in the UK now, and I'm sure similar things are happening in Europe and the US, it's the people who raised questions about lockdown who are being blamed for virus deaths. It is so disingenuous. It's so slippery. There's a Salem-like atmosphere in the United Kingdom at the moment where any lockdown skeptic will be shot down, expelled from public life, demonized. And I think that growing intolerance of dissenting opinion actually shows us that lockdown is a mistake because if your policy cannot even stand any kind of questioning or criticism then it's clearly a hollow policy that really should be put to the test in a more meaningful way well uh, including just the test of logic uh, unity and isolation (laughs) common purpose through fear i mean this is the Mm. you know this is this is new speak not even george orwell could have imagined it would seem to me Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked, Spiked Online. It's the uh, his uh, latest piece, which uh, I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show. It's the pro lockdown lobby that is spreading fake news. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Who takes every kind of people to make what life's about? Yeah. It takes every. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The topic, vaccine distribution. How are the vaccinations going uh, state by state? Well, there's some suggestion that uh, there's uh, a bit of confusion in New York State where St. Andrew of COVID-19 is the governor. Interviews with multiple county officials in New York State over the past week confirm many are unclear why the governor's administration has not activated the county-by-county system, a plan that included recent practice sessions in which members of the public received regular flu vaccines at drive through sites. In Albany County, officials have privately said they could vaccinate the population of the southern half of the county in a few days if they were given the coronavirus vaccines and allowed to mobilize their plan. Huh. And yet um, I haven't uh, heard any pointed questions in the direction of St. Andrew of COVID-19. But there was a pointed question on vaccines and the distribution and the efficacy of said. Uh, directed at uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida by fungible CNN reporter. Her name is not important. And uh, this is how that went. Uh, Ron DeSantis is, uh, I think, a a more polished version of Trump when it comes to dealing with the press. This is highly entertaining. At least it was for me. I hope it is for you. Governor, Governor, what what has gone wrong with, Governor, what has gone wrong with the rollout of the vaccine that we've seen phone lines jammed, websites crashing? There's a lot of demand. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we, excuse me, excuse me. If I could finish my question. You just said what has gone wrong, so I'm answering the question. If I could complete the question, though. So you're going to give a speech or are you going to answer, ask a question? With all due respect, Governor, You asked the question, I'm I'm going to answer it. Finish my you're question. Not, no, you're 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 giving a speech. You asked the question. I am trying to ask you the. You're going to ask how many questions? You get three. They only got one question. Why do you get three? With all due respect, Governor, I'm just asking if I could finish my question. You didn't. You my, finished the question. I did not. My full question is: What went wrong with the rollout of the vaccine when we've seen phone lines jammed, websites crashing? So you're crashing, repeating your question. <laughs> to complete it for you, Governor, 
we've seen websites crash and also senior citizens waiting overnight for the vaccine. Where was that at? We've seen it in Duval, Broward, Orange, and Lee County. And why was, like in Lee, why did that happen? Did you investigate that's, why? That's my question to you, Governor. You're the governor of the state. I'm not the governor of the state. Okay, but you didn't investigate why that happened like in Lee County. Why, why was there a big line? Did you, did you investigate why? Could you tell us because why? Because we, we distributed vaccine to hospitals, and, and the hospital said, first come, first serve. If you show up, we'll do it. So they didn't use a registration system. There wasn't anything that was done, and there's a lot of demand for it. So people are going to want to so go ahead and get it. So are you saying there was uh, no plan it. then from the state to make sure that senior citizens didn't wait outside overnight? So the state is not dictating to hospitals how we're not dictating to Carlos Magoya how he runs his operations here. That would be a total disaster. These guys are much more competent to be able to deliver health care services than a state government could ever be. Well, it's just a great tutorial uh, about, uh, I mean, it's really a, a discussion of subsidiarity, but of course that's a bit esoteric for general consumption. The idea that, hey, look, it, it's the, the DeSantis disposition and it's the, the disposition of a number of other governors, Christine Ohm in South Dakota, Brian Kemp, really generally in, in Georgia, which is say, like, what we place our trust in our constituents to be sensible. Uh, we're trying to get people the resources they need, whether they're the medical professionals or they're staff at nursing homes and long-term care facilities, or they're the residents of those facilities themselves. We're following a progression, but we need partners here. This idea, the state has a plan and then a wand is waved and everything just is implemented without wrinkle or incident is the sort of magical thinking that exists in the D.C. press corps. Ron DeSantis exists in the real world where he needs partners, including in the private sector, to get the job done. For more on this topic, we're pleased now to be joined by Eric Hargan. He is the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here. So um, last month, just before Christmas, when uh, Secretary Azar was on the Sunday talk, he's talking about the vaccine distribution and going back and forth with the likes of Margaret Brennan on the topic. Um, he s sort of suggested the... Uh, the, the system that had been set up and, and the metrics they think that could be met with the caveat there, that, you know, because of these are state and local matters, we're drilling down to states and localities and their partners at the local level. Uh, there are going to be unanticipated wrinkles. But he was talking about 20,000 or excuse me, 20 million vaccinations by the end of December, 100 million by the end of February. It doesn't seem yeah. like that's where we're on track for at present. And so how do you respond to how things are going and if those uh, goals are still realistic? Well, you know, there is 20 million doses sort of being shipped to the states and delivered to them. You know, I think that we have been on track in terms of both the delivery, the production of the vaccine doses by the companies um, and the allocation and shipping and delivery. There's always sort of a lag between allocation and the shipping and delivery, then delivery and administration of the vaccine and then administration and then the report of the vaccine because there's sort of four steps here before we know what the vaccines, how many vaccines have actually gotten in people's arms uh, because there's another person doing the reporting at the end of that chain telling us and then we tell everyone. So they, at the beginning of that step, yes, that's fine. We're shipping the vaccine doses exactly where the states and the other jurisdictions are telling us to ship them. Uh, those are going out the door. Um, and so the work that to ship the vaccines to those locations we think is going pretty well thanks to the work of General Perna's team uh, here, uh, Operation Warp Speed. 
So um, that uh, I think now we get down to levels like where is where are the vaccines being administered? And there's a tremendous variation. The states we've been sort of put out a template plan in September for the states to adapt to. They gave us all their plans. Uh, they looked fine. But of course, there's always implementation issues. And we see a real big difference. I mean, you have states like South Dakota, North Dakota, Connecticut, Maine, they all are reporting, you know, 60, 70 percent of the doses delivered. Uh, and that's obviously rolling distribution. You know, we're we're putting out doses all the time as the production comes in. Uh, you have states that are kind of in the middle uh, and then states that are reporting, you know, less than 25 percent of delivered doses. So, you know, we've we've got a tremendous variation between those hitting, you know, 70 percent marks uh, like South Dakota and those like Virginia that are currently reporting less than 25 percent of delivered doses. And again, putting you know, there might be a gap in the reporting. But you got a big swing there. And, and so for those uh, states that do have kinks in the distribution system, as you're describing, the HHS is in contact with them. There's a, a back. There's a dialogue. There's a back and forth in terms of trying to um, remedy whatever the problems are. Well, they reach out to us. But, you know, in many cases, what they are going to be doing is reaching out to those local distributors and those local institutions that we ship them to to do that directly. We're always available and have been talking with them about potential issues, information that we have, advice we can give. But there's a there's a gap between that, what we do in Washington, and really what we look to being done on the ground, you know, at a particular hospital or at a particular clinic, uh, where state and local authorities are going to have far more information and be more efficient about dealing with those issues when they get the information there. We're always happy to help. We've been helping all along helping them, you know, through CDC and others, trying to help them get their plans together. Uh, but obviously we're seeing a, a varying, as one would expect on a country as big as ours, and as, uh, you know, with so many different circumstances, we're seeing a lot of differences among the states in their ability to uh, get those doses out the door efficiently into people's arms. When we come back with HHS Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan, I want to get to the first doses, first debate that's going on right now, more with... Eric Harkin, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking all things COVID-19 vaccines with HHS Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan. And with respect to the vaccinations, does HHS have any perspective on this argument between those who are promoting a first doses first approach to vaccination, suggesting that basically two vaccinated yeah. people confers more immunity than one double vaccinated person and that there shouldn't be stockpiles being held back for the second doses for individuals who got a first dose vaccination you should be vaccinating as many people as you can with that first dose and then continuing to ramp up production as you need to get the second doses out so there seems well, to be a, a disagreement sure. about a, approach there and i wonder where hhs is at on it 
Well, for example, the clinical trials that were done for these vaccines, we did, they didn't do a kind of a real scrub on the difference between one and two doses. We do have, you know, there's some provisional thoughts about that, about what kind of protection people have seen between one dose versus two doses. We know what the two dose numbers are because a clinical trial was done, was done with that in mind, was this first shot plus the booster. So that's, and there have been thoughts about obviously put all the doses out there. Uh, but if you had, if you had a shutdown in production between that first and second dose and you found that the protection was waning because the first dose wasn't enough for more permanent protection or high enough, then we would be in a, a worse situation where we hadn't held those doses back and instead had a situation where maybe the production wouldn't keep up or maybe there would be, you know, anything can happen with production. If you've been around enough, you see any situation where a plant, something goes wrong with the power supply or anything that can go into a plant and you just don't want to be in that situation from a prudential point of view. You don't want to be in that situation. So hence the hold back and proceeding as the clinical trials, as the data had said, two doses for these first two. Obviously, we have vaccines coming up. We've got vaccines, the last stage of clinical trials. We may need to see some, we may, I say may, see some upside surprises from some of the vaccines that are in late stage clinical trials. That could happen soon, honestly. Uh, with some of our with some of the candidates, but again, that would be an upside surprise. In that case, we're going to have access to more vaccines, hopefully, and more production capacity. With uh, the vaccines, I mean, still, this is going to be a process that's at least a month in terms of the distribution and and the vaccinations that would rise to the level combined with infections of herd immunity. It would seem, at least, that's what some of the experts suggest. Um, is HHS yeah, some suggest that is is HHS still tracking the uh, developments with therapeutic treatments? Uh, there was a, a study out, another study actually, about this um, anti-parasitic drug. Actually, it's a head lice drug called ivermectin. A study out of uh, Liverpool University suggests that, um, and, it, and it builds on an earlier study of the same drug that suggests that it has a real impact in, in terms of uh, eliminating the viral RNA in the patients who were you know, part of the, the study. Yep. yep. I mean, I think that that there's there's literally hundreds of potential therapeutics out there, everything from the monoclonal antibodies that we sponsored out of warp speed through any number of other potential things. And I think that's where, you know, a patient talks to their doctor, they look at those, you know, provisional results and decide what's best for them to do. You know, we don't regulate the practice of medicine uh, here at the federal government at HHS. Uh, so for people to take a look at, at that information, talk to their doctors, figure out whether that's something that they want to look at is something that is completely valid for a patient and a doctor to do. I can't give an opinion about any particular product uh, myself, but, the, you know, that's where the kind of freedom that we have to look at these things and decide what's best. But, you know, one of the things that we want to make sure we do is to make sure that people do know that there are lots of therapeutics out there that have been developed uh, that are available to people. Uh, to get uptake on that. So that's important, especially as you well said, this is going to be a process, um, even at the at the quickest pace, this is going to be a process of getting 330 million people or however many people uh, will uh, choose to be vaccinated, getting them vaccinated. Uh, so even on our, you know, the best estimates that we had and have at the time, the 100 million that you mentioned, that the secretary mentioned by the end of February, um, and by the way, we are we are seeing some signs that the pace of vaccination is picking up. I think people have seen are are, are adapting um, on the on the fly as they see where who's willing to take the vaccine, where they're willing to take it, uh, who's doing a, a better job than others at getting it out there, and what modalities 
are being done. So I'm happy to see that. I think that people are being uh, sort of awake about the issues that have developed. Not everybody. Not everybody. Some people are really stuck in their plans, even when they don't work. Dangerous place to be uh, is to double down on a plan that didn't work uh, and try to just keep jamming at it. But, you know, that's that's a situation that in many cases some jurisdictions are going to be in, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least for now. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, we've I mean, seen a lot of politicians. That's... Yeah, we've seen a lot of politicians doubling down on uh, COVID-related policies that don't work uh, across a range of uh, topic areas. No question about that. Yep. Eric Hargan. Yes. Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, moving from our discussion with HHS Deputy Secretary uh, Hangen to uh, the conversation, uh, moving the conversation back to what transpired today, including at the Save America rally. Earlier, we played some clips from Don Jr. Uh, now, let's hear from Don Sr., President Trump, who, unsurprisingly, went chapter and verse to the assembled crowd, which easily was in the hundreds of thousands, it would appear, from the shots. And he tried to get the, <laughs> entertainingly, tried to get the press to turn their cameras to the crowd on the mall to give people a sense of the magnitude. But uh, on the substance of it, a lot of what you've heard before, going state by state with some of the evidence, a lot of reiteration of what you heard of the rally in Dalton, Georgia on Monday night, putting pressure on Mike Pence to do the right thing. We'll talk a little bit uh, later in the program with former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell about that. But uh, President Trump uh, sort of opening the discussion, talking about the left, and then moving the discussion to talk about uh, All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And uh, Trump's message, not dissimilar to Don Jr.'s, a little bit more nuanced, but the message to... uh, Members of Congress. As history is going to be made, we're going to see whether or not we have great and courageous leaders or whether or not we have leaders that should be ashamed of themselves throughout history, throughout eternity. They'll be ashamed. And you know what? If they do the wrong thing, we should never, ever forget that they did. Never forget. Well, you know, it's complicated uh, if they do the wrong thing. Who's the they? Uh, because as we have talked about over the last eight weeks, you know, there were these dates that we were driving toward. You're on the December 8th clock. You're on the December 14th clock when the state electors meet. Now you're on a January 6th clock and a January 20 clock. And as you go through that process, which was known, it's not like these dates were manufactured out of thin air, that they were, were unknown going into the process post-election. Your opportunities to alter the outcome get winnowed based on how well you perform in the arenas where remedies are available, courts of law and, frankly, courts of public opinion such that you can convince state legislatures, 
state legislators and state legislatures to act. The problem the Trump campaign has, the president has, is that the legal team was unable to persuade judges around the country in the relevant states. And the combination of the legal team and the political team and what was able to be gathered was unable to persuade state legislators in places like Pennsylvania, where courts did an end run around the legislature, or in Wisconsin, where administrative agencies did an end run around the legislature, unable to persuade them to act. The legislatures had power. We talked about that. I mean, so I don't want to pretend like we haven't lived through the last eight weeks and that we weren't making the claims about the moments in time in advance of December 14th and in advance of today. And so I think it's a bit unfair, frankly, to suggest that Mike Pence is supposed to be you know, sort of the Howard Rourke in this story and take it upon himself to do things that, frankly, he is not empowered to do constitutionally as vice president of the United States in this context. And this is not to dismiss the frustration, the exasperation, or the substance of the grievances that are being leveled by the president and many of his supporters. Grievances I have, too. Perhaps um, a better articulation comes from a op-ed at thefederalist.com. And that was uh, posted yesterday. Jenny White. Jenny White is a uh, former school teacher. She is uh, an Oklahoman. She is a, a homeschooling mother of five. She has a background in uh, science, masters in biology. She had careers in epidemia, uh, career in epidemiology as well as teaching, as I mentioned. She wrote an op-ed to talk about why she's coming to the Save America rally that uh, occurred today. Why I'm joining the January 6th D.C. March for Trump. I'm angry. It's not a passing emotion brought on by a single circumstance, she writes. The, this anger is a deep, painful, abiding anger created by a mix of frustration, despair, hopelessness, and injustice. For decades, I've been told to trust American institutions, and if I have grievances, to work harder to improve them. I've done so, far more than most Americans, and my reward has been watching corruption and ineptitude only increase. And she goes through sort of the manifestations of what she's talking about in her career, what she's experienced personally as a teacher and so forth, not just what she's witnessed in this uh, election. She said it's not a single instance. I mean, it's, a, it's a thoughtful piece. She uh, talked about founding this uh, grassroots organization to hold local elected officials accountable. And uh, her experience there, for example, I watched legislators talk to me and my fellow citizen lobbyists as though we were a little more than gum on the bottom of their shoes and explained to us why they knew better than we. A legislator... A legislator told me voters sent him to the Capitol to make laws, and I watched a scowl darken his face when I told him, no, voters send you to the Capitol to protect their liberty, which often means repealing laws. Smart lady. I think uh, Kamala Harris would call that freedom. Anyway, she um, goes on to say that, you know, frustrated by efforts that she made in so many areas that didn't lead to sustained improvement in those areas and with those institutions, she says, look, I'm angry. Because I've been playing by the rules, paying my taxes, being civil and tolerant of my neighbor, accepting without protest the election of past presidents I didn't support, and never threatening physical violence, using name-calling, canceling careers, using governmental goons to unlawfully spy, to invent reasons for impeachment, or using media to misreport, misrepresent, or otherwise create dissension and anger. Yet the other side has carte blanche to do all this and more without condemnation, conviction, or retribution of any kind. I think that uh, paragraph sums up the matter quite nicely, actually. 
And this is not to say because, you know, this is not the, the proverbial two wrongs making a right. This is to say uh, the rules of the game are set through these institutions I'm supposed to respect. I play by them. I get punished. They rewrite the rules to serve their interests uh, as they see fit, and there is no accountability. There's no reward, and yet you want me to continue to dutifully abide the ever-changing rules that essentially enrich you and empower you at my expense. Well, why would I do that? On January 6th, uh, Jenny Fields wrote, I will try this one more time. That day I will stand with fellow Americans on the mall in Washington, D.C., where I will once again petition heaven, where I will again hope to see results before I quit for good. This is Dan Proft. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And speaking of uh, justice, I want to cover something that obviously was subordinated to everything going on between the Georgia Senate runoff elections and uh, what has transpired today. But uh, the announcement by the Kenosha County District Attorney in Wisconsin, his name is Michael Gravely, that none of the police officers involved in the Jacob Blake incident, including the police officer who shot Jacob Blake, that sparked riots, that leveled Kenosha, people love the rioters and looters leveled Kenosha, that none of those officers would be charged with any criminal wrongdoing, gravely. No Kenosha law enforcement officer in this case will be charged with any criminal offense based on the facts and the laws as I will describe them to you now. So it is our decision that no charge will be filed. No charge filed and uh, gravely made this point that we knew back when it occurred. Uh, this was uh, information that was reported, but then dutifully ignored, particularly by the Black Lives Matter professional agitators and the others looking for any predicate to riot and to loot to continue to propagate the uh, mythology around Jacob Blake, just as it was propagated around Michael Brown, right? He had his hands up, except he didn't. He was um, a victim rather than the aggressor. Well, Jacob Blake was reaching for a knife. We knew that at the time, gravely confirms it now after his investigation, and yet it doesn't matter. You still had Jacob Blake's father suggesting the contrary, but first listen to the district attorney. Jacob Blake, while actively resisting, arms himself with a knife. Uh, so the decision not to charge the officers is an obvious one. Yes, it's the correct decision, and so that's the end of it, right? No, there's also the decision as to what to do with Jacob Blake, who is now home after being hospitalized after he was shot in the back by that Kenosha police officer. And uh, the district attorney dispatched uh, Jacob Blake's case without charging him for anything related to his altercation with police officers, to his resisting of arrest, to his endangering the life of a police officer. Necessarily, that has to be the district attorney's conclusion because he's saying the shooting was justified because the officer had a reasonable fear for his life. So felony assault, battery, resisting arrest charges could have been filed, but no. Instead, no charges there. And Blake, who had been charged a month prior to the incident with third-degree sexual assault, felony, two misdemeanors, trespassing and disorderly conduct, struck a plea deal with the prosecutor for two years probation. So uh, even when you have 
prosecutors making proper decision on police in such an instance where you have somebody resisting arrest and attempting to do so with arms, as it were. You still have the assailant, Jacob Blake. He's the assailant. Essentially get a walk. So I'm sorry, that is uh, not anything I'm going to applaud. Yes, obviously, there is no way the officer should be charged. And so that was the right decision. But the failure to send a message about justice under the law, equal justice under the law, the clearly political decision not to charge Jacob Blake, not the legal decision, is problematic. And frankly, a source of more lost confidence in these institutions that are supposed to uphold the rule of law in this country. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parlor. Interesting op-ed at thefederalist.com today from a woman named Jenny White explaining why she's joining the D.C. March for Trump today. She's a homeschooling mom of five. She was a former school teacher. She also has a background in epidemiology. She had uh, this to say. I'm angry because I've been playing by the rules, paying my taxes, being civil and tolerant of my neighbor, accepting without protest the election of past presidents I didn't support, and never threatening physical violence, using name-calling, canceling careers, using government goons to unlawfully spy to invent reasons for impeachment, or using media to misreport, misrepresent, or otherwise create dissension and anger. Yet the other side has carte blanche to do all this and more without condemnation, conviction, or retribution of any kind. On January 6th, I will try one more time. That day, today, I will stand with fellow Americans on the Mall in Washington, D.C., where I will once again petition heaven, where I will again hope to see results before I quit for good. I think that represents the feeling of a lot of Americans and a lot of Trump voters. It speaks to something, you know, not only are they allowed to do things that are inappropriate and improper. You know, it's one thing where it's obvious. It's it's something to say where there are no rules. It's something to say, well, there, there are where there are rules, voting procedures laws, and those rules can just be blithely ignored and be rewritten when opportunity presents itself to do so. Like, for example, the lockdown policies in response to COVID that were the predicate to rewrite how particular states and particular cities within those states were going to administer those their elections. Yeah, that, that's frustrating. When you're playing by the rules and the rule makers are rigging the system against you, always. And every time you abide the new set of rules... They change those rules up on you once again, and they suggest you're a bad person if you don't abide the new rules they just made up out of whole cloth to serve their interests at your expense. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Professor Klaus Rinn. He's a professor of politics. He's founding director of the New Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. He has books including A Common Human Ground and America the Virtuous, and he uh, penned a column for American Conservative how the 2020 election could have been stolen. Professor Wren, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So um, in your piece, you essentially looked at uh, some of the statistical anomalies and suggested that, um, well, that that's indicative of something exceptional that occurred, and we don't have 
an explanation that meets the level of how exceptional these events were that transpired on November 3rd. Yeah, something paradoxical happened. Uh, Political scientists uh, like to predict things. They want to come up with ways of predicting the outcome of an election, and they will say things like, well, the way Ohio goes, so goes the presidency. Of course, that's a very rough uh, rule of thumb sort of measurement, but they can become very detailed in this regard, and so they will expand the idea and say, well, you can't win the presidency without Florida and Ohio. And if you want to be really certain who the winner is going to be, look at how things turn out in Florida and Ohio and Iowa. Now, these are states that are roughly a reflection of the general population of the United States. And what happened in this election is that Donald Trump easily won each of these states. He won Florida by 3%. He won Ohio, the state without which presumably you cannot become president, by 8%. He won Iowa with 8%. Now, somebody might then argue, well, that might be a fluke. Unexpected paradoxical things do happen. Well, if you then go to the more granular level, You can look at certain bellwether counties spread out in the United States, states or counties rather that political scientists have identified as virtually always going with a winner. And they've done so for a long time. And they had identified 19 counties in particular, which tend to go with a winner. And those 19 counties, if you look at them this year, presented a rather striking pattern. Now, since Biden won the presidency, supposedly, you would expect that he would have won the brunt of those counties. Now, according to the political scientists, if you win, let's say, 15 or 16 of those counties, it's virtually assured that the person who won those counties would win the presidency. Well, what is curious, very paradoxical about This particular measure is that Donald Trump won 18 of those 19 bellwether counties, those very competitive counties, and he won them by a good margin. I could go into detail on yeah, this, but I don't but, think but, you're but, but Here's the thing. Yeah, so, right. So, so the dominance and, and the other anomaly is he underperforms Hillary Clinton in uh, major metropolitan areas, except the major metropolitan areas in the states he needed. So Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Phoenix. And so I guess there's one question is for some of the anomalies, is there an explanation based on sort of the, the general demographic composition of the the Trump electorate versus the Biden electorate? And this is how you could explain the 18 of 19 counties, for example, or you know, Florida, these, Iowa, and Ohio, for example. These counties have been selected as being representative somehow of the population as a whole. 50-50 counties. Yes, these are very competitive counties. Mm -hmm. And some of them have voted for the president since the 1800s. Now, the fact that they've done it for a long time by itself does not give them particular predictive value. But it tells you something when these counties, which are largely representative of the country as a whole, go in one direction, except the trend is dramatically reversed in just those states that Biden 
simply had to win in order to carry the presidency. And then the, is, the, the, the other, the other uh, question would be, uh, well, uh, th- these are definitely anomalies, but uh, you had a deus ex machina event, and that was COVID-19. And we administered an election in a way we've never done before. And so it, it was bound to produce anomalies, or certainly it, it could help explain why these anomalies occurred that uh, don't implicate voter fraud. Well, that's a rather weak argument because they certainly had COVID in those 19 counties. There's nothing weird about those counties. On the contrary, they are, have proven to be over the decades, reliably voting the same way as the country as a whole. What is curious here is that it is in the big cities, in the battleground states, that the American electorate somehow reverses course. Biden underperformed percentage-wise relative to Hillary Clinton, and he underperformed quite a bit relative to uh, Obama, but not in the battleground states. Mm-hmm. So that you have uh, something that, that is more than a paradox, something that political scientists have great difficulty coming up with an explanation for. And so what, co- what do your colleagues who say there's no evidence of systemic fraud say about these anomalies? What's their explanation? Well, I can't speak for anybody except myself. Well, I, you've heard the, you've hear, you hear arguments or you hear that statement. I don't actually I don't hear the, uh, the, the, the logical argument behind that statement. I just hear that sort of dismissive statement. There's no evidence of systemic voter fraud, and so I don't have to answer the question about anomalies. Have you heard no, any good arguments yeah. about anomalies? Uh, well, the arguments about anomalies are everywhere. Now, it's too early for me, uh, who am trying to um, exercise some critical distance here, to say in any definite way exactly how much there is to the various charges, but that there are charges and that there are some very mystifying uh, events. That's beyond the shadow of a doubt. And it seems to me to be um, disturbing, even ominous, that the American media, with very, very few exceptions, have not bothered to look into any of these charges. They always say that these are unproven allegations, unsupported. Well, that indicates either ignorance or refusal to consider the evidence. I mean, merely what I've just been telling you about the anomaly of voting patterns across the United States is by itself reason to be curious, mighty curious as mm-hmm. to what would explain this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I guess we're just supposed to accept the uh, company line that uh, Joe Biden punched a lottery ticket with uh, respect to all these anomalies. That seems to be where we're at. Klaus Rinn, professor of politics and founding director of the New Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University of America. Books include America the Virtuous and A Common Human Ground. Professor Wren, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Interesting uh, reader comment uh, 
over at uh, James Freeman's Best of the Web column at the Wall Street Journal. Reader who believes that uh, Joe Biden won uh, the 2020 election uh, wrote this to Freeman. The left needs to accept the fact that too many of the things they told us could not possibly be true turned out to be true, right up to calling him a liar for saying there would be a vaccine. And now they expect normal people who don't follow politics 24-7 to simply believe them that everything is on the up and up, you know, just like the FISA investigation. Everyday people are expected to be able to understand that, even though they see a bag of votes discovered here and an irregularity there, that these are isolated incidents and don't define the entire system. And journalists look down on these people and their cognitive biases, and then these same journalists see a George Floyd video and are ready to dismantle police departments. That's a, 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 a letter from someone who believes Joe Biden won the 2020 election, trying to explain and provide some consideration for those who are raising legitimate questions right up until the very end, and perhaps even suggesting things that would be inappropriate right up until the very end, uh, including the president suggesting that Mike Pence can do things that uh, Mike Pence cannot do constitutionally in this process. Uh, But there is uh, a variety of opinion on that topic. And for more on it, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Ken Blackwell. He is a former Ohio Secretary of State, former mayor of Cincinnati as well, and he is uh, a uh, board member of the Trump-Pence campaign. Ken, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, good to be with you all. Pleasure to have you. And what is it that you hope comes to pass today? What you, What is uh, the point of today from your perspective representing well, the campaign? Well, you look, I woke up this morning to a uh, quote from Churchill. Uh, I don't know what drove me to the quote, but uh, I think it's most appropriate. Churchill said, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that, that, that counts. What I want to do is to make sure that your listeners uh, and the broader audience in this country understand that while Democrats cry outrage over Republicans' challenges to the November 3, 2020 uh, election, they seem to have forgotten uh, their uh, party's actions over the past two decades. Uh, in the years 2001, 2000, uh, and five in 2017, Democrats challenged the electoral uh, votes and slates following uh, presidential elections in 2000, 2004, 2016. Uh, and so uh, despite uh, Democrats and anti-Trumpers alike chastising the president and Republicans uh, who believe that irregularities and trans-constitutional actions took place in, in that election, they must remember that they, in fact, did the same thing in those years I just mentioned. And I happened to be at the eye of the storm in 2004 and five when Stephanie Tubbs Jones and other members challenged the slate of electors from Ohio on the floor at the joint meeting uh, in 2005 on the base. And look, the spread in, in, in Ohio that year between Kerry and Bush Bush won Ohio by 118,000 votes. So this this notion that somehow this is anti-democratic, unconstitutional, is just a farce. And so my hope is that the senators are led by uh, Senator Cruz and the House members uh, led by Jim Jordan and others uh, can, can actually put a little light on the irregularities and illegalities that took place and that affected the integrity of uh, of the election. 
Uh, and and the reason that, let me just say, the reason that's important yeah. is because in 2005, when the Democrats did it, it put in motion George Soros' SOS project where they went out and elected liberal secretaries of state and attorney generals, and their long-game strategy played out in 2020. We see that. And, uh- yeah, and, and right, and now down to the, the state's attorney and district attorney level, to your point. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a good point to raise about the Soros program. But um, oh, So the objections is, is one thing. Uh, what President Trump asserted about Vice President Pence's powers here is another. He uh, said, I'm quoting, Our Vice President has several options under the United States Constitution. He can decertify the results or send them back to the states for change and certification. But that's not true. Right. Well, look, I, I, Dan, let me just say, I, that would have more a staying power if, in fact, official action was taken by state legislators, excuse me, legislatures. I mean, right. You know, right now they have a letter from 140-plus state legislators from affected states, but they don't have official action. If the president, vice president, who actually is, uh, officiates the meeting, uh, had that in front of him, he could officiate. And, and, and that would be challenged, perhaps, by, by, by Democrats. But the proof would be on them to say that the uh, vice president's role is just purely ceremonial and that he can't make any judgments when he has official uh, actions presented to him from legislatures, uh, but he doesn't have that. And so you're right. He, 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 he can't just make up things out of whole cloth. He has to have that. And then I say that he's on good footing to put the pressure on Democrats to, to challenge. Look, this is not purely ceremonial. If, in fact, uh, Biden and Harris are seated and she is officiating uh, at, at a 50-50 split, her vote counts. It's not ceremonial. This is real stuff. And the framers of our Constitution uh, you know, saw that while this might not happen every other year, in situations where there is a contest and contested results, this is a way to make sure that the representatives of the people, not some bureaucrats, make the final decision on certification. Uh, do you uh, believe that uh, the apparent outcome of the Georgia Senate races will have any impact on what happens today? Uh, look, I, I think at the end, <laughs> this, this, is, this is, in 2001, they had a 50-50 split. Uh, and there was a lot of rearranging of the chairs and a lot of negotiations for how they governed um, the, the, the fact is, is that if it, if it remains or if it turns out that Republicans lost both seats and it's a 50-50 split, uh, Joe Manchin probably becomes the most powerful senator uh, in, in, the, in the country. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, it's going to take a lot of back and forth uh, between uh, the Schumer and McConnell to decide how they govern, uh, but at the, in the final analysis, if it gets to a vote and there's a 50-50 split, Harris would break the tie. 
Uh, and so the answer to your question is that the Democrats are in a stronger position today than they were would have been if, in fact, we split that those seats in Georgia or had won both of them. He is Ken Blackwell, former Ohio Secretary of State and Mayor of Cincinnati, uh, now also a member of the uh, Trump-Pence campaign board representing the campaign. Ken, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. God bless you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Jason Riley writing in the Wall Street Journal about Ma Pelosi's cultural revolution in the House and uh, her new speak, you know, the gender-neutral language. He writes, does Riley, plus he's obviously attempting to placate the progressives in her caucus. However, it's also another example of how the political left today demands not only tolerance but endorsement. You can't disagree respectfully, let alone agree not to agree. He goes on to add, what the left is attempting to do here goes well beyond semantic tinkering. The goal is not simply to tell us what we can or can't say aloud, but to redefine common words and expressions to advance a political agenda. He uses the example, discussions of racial diversity, that term, somehow omit Asian Americans. You redefine the term, you redefine the terms of discussion. We've seen this across a range of topic, topic areas, the ascent of the cultural revolutionaries, and uh, it continues. Which uh, brings me to this um, interesting piece by uh, Robert Henderson, who's a doctoral candidate at the University of Cambridge, about, as he argues, how the Overton window has become the Overton dartboard. So let's explore that with Robert Henderson. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, hey, thank you for the invitation. Give us, uh, let's let's get some, uh, uh, the, the baseline term defined here. Uh, remind us what the Overton window is and then explain how it's become, it went from a window to a dartboard. The Overton window is basically this uh, idea that opinions and beliefs and ideas, you know, they have to fall within a certain range of acceptability to be politically palatable. So it's essentially the range of publicly acceptable ideas at a given time. It applies to politicians, but it applies to, you know, citizens as well. At any given moment, a specific social or political belief falls within this range. Uh, and of course, there are sort of the outer edges, you know, both on the left and the right, of more sort of extreme views that most people tend to shy away from. And so most people don't tend to express those beliefs. My idea here is, you know, something I've noticed, say, within the last five years or so, is that the Overton window uh, has become what I call the Overton dartboard. And what I mean by this is that, you know, instead of this sort of window of acceptable views, I imagine a sort of dartboard, and each dart you throw wins you certain points. And so these darts are essentially, you know, tweets or public statements, social media posts, you know, op-eds, what have you. And, you know, each time you throw a dart, you're trying to hit your mark, trying to get your point across, you're trying to, you know, persuade or, or to just sort of engage in conversation. And so you might think that today you're throwing these darts and you're winning points. But then imagine some people come along and say, oh, well, actually, you know, we changed the rules of the game. And these darts you're throwing are actually losing you points. And you're actually losing the game. So you're not such a good dart player. And so what I'm claiming here is that each new sort of moral fashion, and I think they're changing quicker and quicker, uh, it offers you know, sort of political activists and these kinds of uh, you know, moral entrepreneurs the opportunity to change our scores. So what you posted in, say, 2014 
2021, that's considered unacceptable. And now, uh, now you've learned, you know, even though seven years ago you were a good dartboard player, now today you're, you're actually very bad and we need to stop you from, from playing the game at all. Yeah, but, uh, but in, 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 both dire- in both directions, but particularly from the left, it, I would almost argue it's, it's not a window it's, uh, that, that the entire house is removed. You're just sitting on the lawn. I mean, there's, there's no win- window required. There's no sort of um, the, the, another version of this or, or metaphor is making the ground fertile for a new idea. Uh, you just go from redefining, uh, just to use this as an example, you go from redefining marriage to redefining gender to redefining the terminology used to describe it you know you're you're on this continuum and you just keep going further and further and frankly uh, popular opinion really isn't relevant Uh, you don't really need to make the ground fertile as long as you have a a cadre of thugs that are willing to sort of impose their will and impose costs on people who are sort of disposed to be afraid to be culturally ridiculed much less uh, professionally impaired Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. Um, I, I think at the moment, especially among sort of more culturally elite institutions, it is coming more from one side than the other. But one um, study that I cited in that city journal piece uh, is that the, the political uh, affiliation of people who are worried about speaking their minds is it, it's basically identical. And so what I mean is that about uh, 40 percent of Democrats and 40 percent of Republicans report uh, that they are worried about uh, expressing themselves, expressing their political views. Now, I, I would imagine that probably a lot, I mean, Republicans, certainly, but, but even among those Democrats, probably more fearful from, from being targeted by the left, um, especially on social media. So that same study was, was done by these political scientists, James Gibson and, and Joseph Sutherland. And you know, that paper I found very interesting that they did, it was called Keeping Your Mouth Shut, Spiraling Self-Censorship in the United States. And, yeah, you know, and, and Robert, Robert, let's 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 hold it right there. I want to I want to pick up. We got to take a break, but I want to pick that up on the other side because it is interesting, and I think some people, some of our listeners, may be surprised to hear that Democrats are just self-identified Democrats, just as uh, worried about what they say or don't say as Republicans, and why that might be. So I want to explore that with you right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Robert Henderson, doctoral candidate at the University of Chicago, about his uh, very interesting piece in City Journal, Tell Only Lies. And uh, Robert, before the break, we were talking about um, one of the studies you cited in your op-ed uh, that uh, suggests that Democrats, self-identified Democrats, just as concerned, just as fearful about saying the wrong thing or not saying the right thing as Republicans. Mm-hmm. And you were about to suggest some reasons why that might be. Right. Yeah. Just to jump in for a second, I'm a, I'm a doctoral candidate at, at Cambridge, although I did almost uh, attend Chicago uh, for, for my doc- doctor. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Did I say sorry, Chicago? But, but yeah. Sorry. University of Cambridge. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Hey, no worries. Chicago's a great school. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, I, I just wanted to, to sort of explain uh, some of the interesting findings from this paper uh, by these political scientists, uh, James Gibson, Joseph Sutherland. And so I think, you know, sort of this, there's this idea in, in American culture, American society, that 
you know, one one particularly dark era of people being targeted for their political views was McCarthyism. Um, in the 1950s, we think about, you know, the Red Scare and people sort of, uh, the government targeting people for, for, you know, harboring supposed communist sympathies. But what these political scientists found when they dug through data from decades ago, they found in the 1950s, um, only 13% of Americans reported that they didn't feel free to speak their minds. Um, and so that's, you know, 13% is that a lot or a little bit? Well, what they found is that by the 1980s, that figure had reached 20%. So in the 80s, more Americans were afraid to speak their minds. And then in the 50s, and then they found by 2019, the number had jumped to 40% um, of Americans reported that they didn't feel free to speak their minds. So today it's, you know, uh, twice as high as the 1980, almost three times as high as the 1950s uh, during the, the McCarthy era. And, and as we were saying before, um, the percentage of, of Democrats who are worried is about identical as Republicans, about 40 percent of, of people of both political per, uh, persuasions. But but so but uh, particularly with respect to self-identified Democrats, why, since uh, their fellow travelers, generally speaking, control uh, almost all of the cultural, civic and civic institutions and now many of the political institutions, many more of the political institutions than they did just a few weeks ago, uh, at, at least at the federal level, why would they be afraid? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think one reason might be that, you know, on average, you'll probably find, um, say, more Republicans and conservatives in more sort of uh, blue-collar occupations, whereas in more white-collar occupations, and especially at sort of like in university and in media, um, you'll find, uh, on average, more Democrats. Uh, and so that was another interesting finding from that study was that, um, you know, although there was no political difference, there was a difference by education in terms of who was afraid of speaking their minds. They found that among right. Americans who uh, their, their highest level of education was a high school diploma, about 30 uh, percent self-censor. But among those who attended college uh, with a bachelor's degree or higher, 45 percent do. So, you know, I found that interesting because you might think that, oh, it's the people who you know, maybe don't have as much education, maybe don't have as many resources or as high of an income, they would be the people who are sort of mo most timid to express themselves. But it's actually the people who have the most resources and the most uh, education and, yeah. and position in society. Those are the people who are afraid. It really is interesting. I, you know, I mean, this is all just sort of uh, fun sporting conjecture. But, um, you know, some of it may be that... Uh, Gosh, I don't know, especially if, if they get outside their bubble and run across a, a, a blue-collar worker. Maybe the a soy boy like John Ossoff doesn't want to get his ass kicked by a steel worker uh, if he's going to – if he, uh, you know, is want to lecture him like he lectures the country when he's on TV. And I'm just using him as, a, as a, one politician as an example. But perhaps the other uh, thing, but more accurate, um, is, you know, the, the, uh, the white-collar or the uh, college-educated – the resourced individual is more concerned with status than the uh, Johnny Lunchpail guy. Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, there's there've been a couple of interesting uh, studies that have come out in the last year or so, which found that um, you know basically who cares about status, social status, the most in society, sort of defined as respect and admiration from their peers, from the people who are sort of closest to them and around them. Uh, what those studies found is basically the higher your status in society, the more you care about status. Uh, and so, you know, the higher your education, the higher your, your income levels and so on, those are actually the people who care most about their self-image, about um, how other people view them, about being well-liked. And so this could be um, yet another reason why you, know, you see so much uh, conformity 
and so much timidity among those uh, who are who are highly educated. Uh, there was another study about about people's uh, how, how fearful they are about losing their jobs if their political views became known. So it wasn't just are you afraid to express yourself, but how afraid are you about losing your job? And for right. those with uh, who, whose education stopped at a high school degree, it was 25% of them, so one in four. But for those with a postgraduate degree who you know, continued their education after their bachelor's, it was 44%. So basically half of the people who have the highest level of education uh, openly admit that they're afraid of losing their job if their political views became known. So what I continue so, to say in that article is that you know the highest educated people, there may be incentives for them to, to deceive the rest of us into lie. Well, that's that's what I wanted to get to is you know, so if we've gone to, from the Overton window to your Overton dartboard, then uh, where does this ultimately end? And it, it you know it seems that uh, you're going to have people in charge of society that are more interested in trafficking in beautiful lies than uncomfortable truths. And so it was something um, I read from uh, a uh, an expat of the Eastern Bloc. Uh, one of the uh, features of Eastern Bloc countries during Soviet domination was that people were compelled to live a different life in private than they lived in public. And that gets very exhausting, number one. Number two, you, per, per, some people lose sort of a sense of what is real and what is not. And that's sort of where you were suggesting that this is going. Right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you have half of the most highly educated people in the country you know, acknowledge that they're afraid of losing their jobs if they, you know, express their political views, then, of course, that just creates this kind of incentive for that half to to lie or, or at the very least, to not be forthcoming about what their beliefs are. And so we could see a shift toward toward what you're describing here, where, you know, people sort of quietly say one thing, but then when they're at the office or with their uh, coworkers or with their peers or, or, you know, sort of talking on social media, you'll see people say things that they don't necessarily believe just so that they can keep their, their social circles so that they can keep their jobs. Robert Henderson, doctoral candidate at the University of Cambridge. Check out his speech, which I'll tweet out at uh, Dan Prof Show. Tell only lies at uh, city-journal.org. Robert Henderson, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's hard to align my good intentions. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show and uh, part of the exasperation over the last several weeks well from the election forward to today of course there's been a lot of people suggesting that there is no point if uh, this election is stolen from president trump if there is no point if no one is ever brought to justice by the durham investigation you know what is the point of this uh, experiment in self-governance and uh, i understand the frustration um and um the challenge seems so big because mainly people look at where the the media focuses on, on the focus where the media focuses where the media wants you to look and um where you place so much of your aspiration 
So the president of the United States, the federal government, you know, that's what's covered. Ubiquitously, state legislature, less sexy, less coverage. So we say, you know, why doesn't Mike Pence do something? Why doesn't Attorney General Barr do something? Why doesn't the Supreme Court do something? And uh, as I talked about a little bit earlier in the show, less inclined to say, where were these Republican-controlled state legislatures when they were watching administrative agencies or courts do end runs around their power as it pertains to the administration of elections? Where have legislatures been when it comes to governors doing end end runs around their constitutions, as well as the federal constitution, arguably, when it comes to COVID lockdowns? So what's the point? The point, I guess, is that you put in the fight for what you know to be right, and uh, much like Whitaker Chambers, um, you do so maybe even expecting to lose. But the point is pursuing the truth, speaking the truth, fighting for what you know to be right, even in that circumstance. Uh, read uh, Whitaker Chambers' uh, trials and tribulations in his autobiograph- autobiograph- autobiographical autobiographical, I can't speak, uh, magnum opus witness, if you think we have it rough in this country. C.S. Lewis observed, uh, you find out uh, the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And um, we should uh, try to fight the evil impulse in us right now, those of us who are battling that impulse to give in, to give up, to throw up our hands. We should try to fight it uh, similarly so that we find out the strength that lies within us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the programs, on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please stay informed so you can stay courageous, so you can stay the fight, so we can stay free. And stay tuned for tomorrow's show. This is the Dan Prof Show.